Acts 8.14. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For it had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. This text raises the question now as to whether or not the Pentecostal understanding of the baptism of the Holy Spirit has a good basis here. Let me explain what I mean by the Pentecostal understanding of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. For the last hundred years or so, the mainline Pentecostal teaching has been that after the initial work of the Holy Spirit by which we are grafted into the body of Christ through faith, there is a later experience, a crisis experience perhaps, by which we, by faith, receive the Holy Spirit in new fullness and power characterized by speaking in tongues. There are a lot of non-Pentecostals who would agree that the baptism with the Holy Spirit is a, a second decisive receiving of the power of the Holy Spirit after conversion, but don't necessarily equate it with speaking in tongues. For example, A.J. Gordon, founder of Gordon Seminary, Reuben Torrey, Dwight L. Moody, Charles Finney, and many others who taught that the baptism of the Holy Spirit was, in fact, a second event by which we consciously received the blessings of the Holy Spirit not yet appropriated in conversion and yet not aligned with speaking in tongues. Now, this passage here in Acts 8 uh, gives apparent support to a two-stage kind of reception of the Holy Spirit and is appealed to as a kind of classic text for Pentecostal teaching of, of various kinds. Let me try to show why that is and then assess it a little bit with you. The Samaritans in this text had already been converted, so it is said, and that's the first experience before the apostles come down and lay hands on them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. And then the apostles come and they receive the Spirit, and that's the second experience with this gap of time in between, hence the two-stage experience of the Holy Spirit. Verse 15 says that John and Peter came down, prayed for the Samaritans that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for it had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So it's obvious that something's missing in these people's lives. And the apostles come to lay hands on them that they might uh, receive or that the Holy Spirit might fall on them. Now, in spite of the fact that there's something missing here, there's something lacking, the text seems to suggest real strongly that they are already genuine believers. Now, I know that in recent days, interpreters are are saying, no, that's not true. James Dunn's book, Anthony Herkimer's book, its recent interpreters are arguing that uh, the Samaritans were not converted until the apostles laid their hands on them, the Holy Spirit fell. Now, that has not been the historic interpretation of this text up until recent decades in the church. So let me give you the arguments on the other side, namely that these were genuine believers, and then I'll show you the reasons that people are changing their minds 
today. There are four reasons, at least, why uh, John Calvin and Matthew Henry and virtually all interpreters, almost and, until recent days, have assumed that the Samaritans were genuine believers and even before the apostles came down. Number one, in verse 6, it says that the Samaritans gave heed to what was said by Philip when he was preaching there. Now, that little phrase, gave heed to him, may seem sort of innocuous, but when you compare it to the most close parallel in chapter 16, verse 14, where Lydia is being preached to, along with the other women at the riverside, by Paul. And it says, the Lord opened her heart to give heed to what was said by Paul. It's a very close parallel to what was said by Philip. To give heed to what was said by Paul, give heed to what was said by Philip. Only the difference is here it's made plain that the Lord was opening her heart so that she could do that. So that on the face of it, it looks like if somebody gives heed to a gospel preacher... It's because the Lord has opened their heart to enable them to give heed. And therefore, it looks very genuine here. I would be very slow to say that they were not genuine unless there was some reason to. Second, they are rejoicing in verse 8. And that's the parallel with the end of the chapter there with the Ethiopian eunuch having believed and been baptized and come up out of the water. And he goes on his way rejoicing. It's as though joy right through the book of Acts is a signal that people are walking Uh, in relationship to the Lord. The third argument is that they believed Philip, verse 12, they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. And the emphasis doesn't seem to fall to me on the fact that they believed Philip, but that they believed Philip preaching good news about the kingdom and about the name of Jesus Christ. They have believed. And then verse 16 says that they were baptized into the name of Jesus. And this is interesting because... Uh, even though the apostles come down, lay their hands on them, they receive the Holy Spirit, they don't get rebaptized. And you might think that if their baptism was, was uh, illegitimate because it was uh, a, a faithless thing, that once the Spirit came, they'd do it right. That's in fact exactly what happened in Acts 19 when Paul came and he found that the disciples in Ephesus only knew the baptism of John and had been baptized uh, but they didn't know uh, to be baptized in the name of Jesus. Then he laid his hands on them and they believed and were, were baptized. It was reversed. They were baptized and then he laid his hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. So the fact that these weren't rebaptized suggests that Luke didn't see any problem in their baptism. And therefore they were genuine. Now, what that would mean is that uh, the Holy Spirit was ministering to these people in two stages. For some reason. One, they got converted by giving heed and believing the gospel. And then secondly, the apostles came down, laid their hands on them, and and the Holy Spirit fell upon them. And many, many teachers conclude, therefore, that this is a kind of pattern of a a two-step work of the Holy Spirit in the life of, of Christians. However, there are increasing number of people who say that they weren't converted until the Holy Spirit came with the laying on of the hands of the apostles. And the three reasons given in, in both the books that I read by Herkimer and Dunn is, are these. Number one, uh, it says in verse 12 that they believed Philip. It doesn't say that they believed the gospel or that they believed in Christ, and that's taken as a kind of tip-off that their belief was spurious, was not genuine. Second, 
Simon the sorcerer believed. It says that in verse 13. And we know from last week's message and the further text context that he was not a genuine believer. Verse 21, you have neither part nor lot in this matter. So if Simon can be uh, ungenuine, then so could the Samaritans, even though it says they believed. And third, uh, if you assume from the statement the Holy Spirit had not yet fallen on any of them, that they didn't have the Holy Spirit in any sense whatsoever, then you would conclude from Romans 8, 9, he who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him, that they weren't believers at all. So those are the three reasons why there are uh, people today who are saying this doesn't even represent a two-stage coming of the Holy Spirit at all because he didn't come at all until he came with the laying on of the hands of the apostles. And therefore, there's no question here at all concerning a two-stage coming of the Holy Spirit. Even if they were already believers, genuine believers, before the apostles came, the historic evangelical interpretation of this text is that it does not give a normative pattern of a two-stage receiving of the Spirit because it was an exceptional situation. And the reason it was exceptional is because the Samaritans and the Jews were at odds with one another for ages. And when the Holy Spirit and the gospel arrives in Samaria and the church begins to assemble out of these enemies of the Jews up in Jerusalem, God ordains that there be a special kind of situation here to symbolize and to illustrate the unity of the body of Christ so that he withholds certain blessings of his spirit until the apostles, the representatives of the Jewish church, come down, lay their hands on these enemy Samaritans to signify we are one in Christ, then the spirit verifies that oneness and you have unity in the church. And so it's not a normative pattern to be copied from age to age. Rather, it is a once-for-all, unique, redemptive, historical circumstance that simply is to help make plain the unity between Jews and Samaritans. Now, what do we make of all this? This is very confusing. I find uh, the doctrine of the baptism of the Holy Spirit a very difficult one and uh, have been wrestling for years with it and for the last two days have been knocking my head against the book of Acts, trying to get my head open and uh, not blaming the word of God, but my own a slowness of heart and confusion. Uh, and what I've decided to do is to come at the issue indirectly, that is to come at the issue of the baptism of the Holy Spirit indirectly, by asking the question, can we know with some relatively high degree of certainty what Throughout the book of Acts, it means to receive the Holy Spirit. Is there anything running through all of the illustrations of receiving the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts that would uh, be acceptable by everybody? And then come at sort of through the back door to this whole issue of what we call the various receivings. I'm going to try that anyway. Uh, I, have, I have a thesis. I have one point I want to try to get across, and that's this. Wherever in the book of Acts the Holy Spirit is described as coming, it is experiential, not inferential. That's my thesis this morning. Wherever the book of Acts describes the coming of the Holy Spirit, it is 
discernible, point-outable, experiential, not inferential. And what I mean by inferential is this. It is not something that you don't know is there except by inferring it from other acts of will that you perform. Now, I'll come back to that later on because I think that's, that's basic contemporary American evangelical understanding of the Holy Spirit. And it's not good. Let me illustrate from, from Acts itself what I mean by experiential. If you want to turn with me to Acts chapter 19, verse 2. Acts 19, Verse 2. The situation here in Acts chapter 19 is that Paul has come to Ephesus. He has found there a dozen people who are uh, disciples of John the Baptist still, and they are very uh, confused about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. They don't know, they don't know about baptism in Jesus' name. They don't know about the Holy Spirit. And Paul is very perplexed about who these people are and what in the world the, what What is their condition anyway? And he therefore opens things up with a question that to my mind is a question that every American evangelical ought to hear and come to terms with because it's the question that is very troubling. The question in verse 2 is, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed Is that a question you would ask anybody? That's a remarkable question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? See, evangelicals, for the most part, in America, have been taught, by and large, that the way you know that you've received the Holy Spirit is that you believe in Jesus. And it's a syllogism. It's a compute. Premise number one. Everybody who believes in Jesus has the Holy Spirit. Premise number two. I believe in Jesus. Conclusion. I've got the Holy Spirit. Has nothing to do with experience whatsoever. You just compute. Believer, have the Holy Spirit. What do you make of this question if you believe that? you You wouldn't ask this question. If you today, if you good American evangelical want to know if somebody has the Holy Spirit, what do you ask them? You say, are you a believer in Jesus? They say, yes. Oh, good. Then you've got the Holy Spirit. Next word. Are you a believer in Jesus? Yes. Oh, good. Well, then I know you've got the Holy Spirit. You wouldn't walk up to anybody and ask them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Because they kind of scratch their head and look at you. Well, I don't get it. Well, you mean, you're sort of implying that uh, I could know whether I've received the Spirit another way than by believing it. I'm confused by your question, Paul. We've been taught to just believe that the Spirit is there, whether he has any effects on us or not. But Paul talks as if uh, there's a way to know he's there besides believing. Otherwise, he would just say, did you believe? He says, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? When you believed, was there this thing called receiving the Holy Spirit? Did it happen to you? And everybody in this room ought to ask yourself that question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And, and it's, it's not being fair to Paul's question to say, 
I believed. Therefore, I received the Holy Spirit. That's not fair because that that won't work with this question. When he says, did you receive the Holy Spirit, the Spirit, when you believed, he expects that a person who has received the Holy Spirit knows it, not just because it's an inference from his faith, but because it's an experience with effects that you can point to. And I'll come back to that and show what those are later on. Now, the point I'm making is this. Everywhere, that right there, that that implication that the coming of the Holy Spirit is an experiential reality you can point to and argue from is right through the book of Acts. It is normative. It is universal. It is without exception. Everywhere the Spirit comes in the book of Acts. Let me try to illustrate that now. There are seven and only seven phrases used by Luke for describing the coming of the Holy Spirit. Here they are. Number one, the Holy Spirit is being given to people. Right here in verse 18, Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of hands. Second, the Holy Spirit falls upon people. Right here in verse 16, the Holy Spirit had not fallen on any of them. Third, the Holy Spirit comes upon people. Chapter 1, verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Chapter 4, poured out on people. Chapter 2, verse 17, the Spirit is poured out according to the prophecy of Joel. Number 5, receiving the Holy Spirit. Right here in verse 15, they had not yet received the Holy Spirit. They received it by the laying on of hands. Number 6, baptized in the Holy Spirit. And number 7, filled with the Holy Spirit. And I have in mind there, not the ongoing fillings of the Holy Spirit we see, but the initial filling, chapter 2, verse 4, that happened at Pentecost, and Paul's first filling where Ananias came to him, laid his hand on him, and said, The Lord has sent me to lay hands on you that you might receive sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Boom! And he was converted by the filling, with the filling of the Holy Spirit at that moment and spoke the word of God boldly there in the synagogues in Jerusalem. Now, those seven ways of talking about the coming of the Holy Spirit, that's all there are in the book of Acts. There aren't any others. And when you track those down and ask, where are they found and what happens when they happen? What kinds of experiences accompany those seven descriptions? They all happen in six stories. They're all very manageable. You can, you can bottle them all up into six stories. Now, let me just mention what those stories are. The first one, of course, is Pentecost. All seven of those are used in relation to Pentecost. And the effects are speaking in tongues, praising the mighty works of God, and power to witness, as you see there with 3,000 converts. The second story is the story of Samaria, where something so obvious happens that uh, Simon, watching it, sees it and says, I'll give you money if you'll let me lay my hands on people. So that will happen. Whatever, Whatever was happening, it was so clearly discernible. Simon saw it and says, whoa, I want that kind of power so that I can make that happen to Pete. The third story is at Caesarea in the house of Cornelius, where five of these terms are used. And the effects there are uh, speaking in tongues and uh, praising God. The fourth is the story at Ephesus we referred to, where these 12 disciples of John are met and Paul prays for them, lays his hand on them, and they receive the Spirit. They speak in tongues. They prophesy. And the fifth is Paul's conversion. In chapter 9, verse 17, where the Holy Spirit fills him and then he has boldness and empowering for witness. And the final illustration or instance where these terms are used is in chapter 5, verse 32, where it says, 
that God gave the Holy Spirit to everyone who is obeying him, so that obedience becomes a necessary sign of those who are receiving the Holy Spirit. In every case, in other words, in every case in the book of Acts, without any exception at all, that the Holy Spirit is described explicitly in coming in some way or another with these seven words, it is experiential. It's discernible. It's seeable. And the experiences are, we can sum them up, speaking in tongues sometimes, prophesying sometimes, freely praising God sometimes, and boldness and obedience to God. And if you just draw it out a little farther than just at the immediate moment of the coming, which is where I'm limiting it, then you can include signs and wonders and miracles and so on. Now, the point of all this is this. Whether or not, and here I'm just going to plead openness at this point, whether or not Luke conceives of the coming of the Spirit into the lives of believers in two stages or one stage or multiple stages or a complication of You don't find anywhere in the book of Acts a mentality like we have today, by and large, in the evangelical church that says, in order to get people on the dotted line, well, if you believe, did you believe that Jesus is your Savior and died for your sins? Yes. Well, all right. Then uh, we know. That you have the Holy Spirit. And you may, you may say that you have the Holy Spirit now. Regardless of any feeling, any experience, anything at all happening to you. Because it is faith that is the premise of the having of the Holy Spirit. It's an inference. Now you just don't find that in the book of Acts. I don't think you find it in the New Testament. The coming of the Holy Spirit is a divine, supernatural reality. It's an experience. That one can know. So that when the question is asked to you, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believe? You can say yes or no. We can say more about this experience. Nowhere in the book of Acts are we promised that we'll speak in tongues if we receive the Spirit. Nowhere in the book of Acts are we promised that we will prophesy. However, there is a promise in the book of Acts. Namely, chapter 1, verse 8. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will receive power. Power. That's what the disciples were waiting for and that's what they experienced. Everybody upon whom the Holy Spirit comes in his fullness receives power. That's a promise. And then I believe what you have is illustrations throughout the book of Acts of the kinds of power that come. Speaking in tongues, gift of prophecy, overflowing free praise, obedience, courage and boldness. And it goes on in other parts of the Bible with gifts. Hebrews 2.4, miracles, Galatians 3.5, signs and wonders, Acts 6.8, and so on. However it comes... It is an experience of divine reality 
not an idea in the head about my spiritual condition inferred logically from an act of will that I performed. That's American evangelism. Pragmatism to the core. And the reason it exists, I believe, is because our pragmatic nature wants to make things happen. We want to make churches happen. We want to make converts happen. Schools happen. We want things to happen. We can design a theology that makes things happen. You design your theology to fit your pragmatism. And if you want to get enough converts, you can design enough things that they can perform without any supernatural experience in their life at all. You can get people to sign cards. You can get people to agree with doctrines. You can get people to pray prayers. You just can't get them to be authentic praisers. And therefore, you can't make that a condition here because you gotta have success. You gotta, it's gotta work. You gotta have control. And therefore, I think that the reason we have designed a Holy Spirit theology that makes him an inference from my willpower performances is because if we don't, we're out of control. We're utterly dependent upon him to make us successful in evangelism or church growth, or any kind of ministry. Come back to the question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? I wonder how we would answer. Just go down the road. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Let me give some answers to that question that I believe many of you, most of you, could give. Yes, I have seen the spirit of obedience at work in my life, subduing sin and inclining me to acts of love. Yes, I have seen the spirit of praise in my life, filling my heart with love to Jesus and causing me to overflow in worship to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Yes, I have seen the spirit of courage in my life, freeing me from fear and giving me desires to take risks for Jesus' name. Yes, even though I know that speaking in tongues and uh, gifts of prophecy are no sure sign of being born of God, nevertheless, in the context of other evidences, they too are a precious sign of the presence of God in my life and so on. Now, If you can't answer in one of those ways or some way similar to that, I can think of three reasons why you may not be able to. And I close with this because I want us to pray about it for just a few minutes. Number one, you may never have believed in Jesus as your personal Savior and Lord. That's real possible in a room this size, isn't it? You may never have struck that deal with him whereby you said, you are king, you are Lord. I'm dependent, I'm the sinner, I need you and your forgiveness and your atoning work in my life, and I surrender all, I'm yours. I trust you from here on out for the fulfillment of all your promises in my life. may have never happened. Second reason might be that that has happened, but there's a kind of delay or blockage in your life for a reason that I right now cannot and may not be able ever To explain your own kind of Samaritan experience. I don't want to set up Samaria as normative. I think that would be a mistake. 
But I think we ought to be open to the fact that in his coming, the Holy Spirit may withhold measures of his fullness and blessing from us because of there being some kind of blockage there, some kind of thing restraining the fullness of his outpouring in our lives. And if that's the case, we need to pray that that be removed and overcome. And then the third possible reason for why you may not give an answer is not that neither of those has happened, but that perhaps both have happened, but you've never learned the language of the Holy Spirit by which you can identify His working, and therefore you've never even learned to give Him credit for the work that He's really doing in your life. I think that's true for a lot of evangelical believers. There's just a lot of things the Holy Spirit has done, but we've been in such a man-centered atmosphere. We've been taught that we're responsible for our salvation, we're responsible for our growth, and we're responsible for this and that, and therefore everything we've done we have construed to be coming from us, when in fact God in His grace, through our bad theology, might be blessing us beyond measure if we would just learn to recognize His power in our life and give Him the glory and the credit for what He's doing. Stand in awe. Well, I'd like us to bow in prayer now. And simply in the last minutes of, these, of this service and in between the services, deal with God at whatever level you sense Him speaking to you. I just urge those of you who need to believe in Jesus to do that, to put your faith in Him right now with an act of trust and submission. And invite him to fulfill his promise to come into your heart and to make you his child. And I invite you to pray against those blockages and ask God for the fullness of the Spirit and all the blessings that he has. And we all should pray that we learn better how to interpret the work of the Spirit in our life how to discern his voice and see his leading and know his hand upon us so that he gets the credit. And our prayer teams that stand here at the front between services would just love to put their prayers together with yours in any of these three ways, that God would save you, that God would release you, that God would teach you or anything else that you came into this service longing for help and support with, they'll be standing here at the front. Just stop by and say, my name is so-and-so. Would you pray with me about this? And so, Father, I commend this teaching to you for your use. And I plead with you not to let it fall to the ground. Or let Satan pluck it off the path. But would you grant that it land in good soil and spring up and bear fruit 30, 60, 100 fold. In Jesus' name I pray. And all the people said, Amen.